Hello and welcome to the Plaza Central podcast. Stay informed about Latin America's most pressing political, economic, and social developments. Plaza Central is a production of the Latin American program of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Greetings and welcome to the Plaza Central podcast. I am your host, Benjamin Gadan, director of the Latin America program at the Wilson Center in Washington. On Sunday, February 4th, El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, easily won re-election. His astounding popularity stands out in a region where most incumbents are thoroughly disliked. Indeed, not only did Bukele win in a landslide, but his Nuevas Ideas party might end up with all but two seats in the National Assembly. Though he is an outlier, the secret of his success is not altogether a mystery. Number one, Bukele, age 42, is a master at political marketing, including on social media. Number two, he has something to brag about. His mano dura, or heavy-handed security policies, have dramatically reduced violent crime in El Salvador, previously one of the world's most dangerous countries. Number three, his competition, the left-wing FMLN and the conservative ARENA parties that emerged from the country's long civil war are widely mistrusted. But not everyone is celebrating Bukele's victory. In recent years, Latin America's fragile democracies have seen a new threat, not from traditional military coups, but from elected leaders abusing their authority to undermine institutional checks and balances and intimidate outside agents of accountability, including the independent news media. For many observers, Bukele is a textbook example. In his first term, he alarmed defenders of democracy by deploying the military to pressure lawmakers over a budget dispute. He removed Supreme Court justices and appointed loyalists in their place. He ignored a constitutional prohibition on re-election, and he engaged in extreme gerrymandering. In his successful crackdown on criminal gangs, he has relied upon a state of exception that suspends civil liberties. In all, he has detained 75,000 Salvadorans without basic due process guarantees. This behavior has concerned today's Plaza Central guest, who has not joined in the celebrations of Bukele's re-election, that are taking place across El Salvador and among the Salvadoran diaspora, including in my hometown of Washington, D.C. Noah Bullock is executive director of Fundación Cristosal, a non-governmental organization in El Salvador that focuses on human rights in the country and in the region. He is based in San Salvador. Noah, welcome to Plaza Central. Thank you, Benjamin. Good to be here. You have ink on your finger, but don't worry, I won't ask you whom you voted for on Sunday. I do, however, want to talk about the election. It seems abundantly clear that Salvadorans are willing to trade civil liberties for improved security. Do you blame them? Yeah, that's. Um, it's a, it's, I think that's a generalized statement uh, that isn't necessarily supported in polls. Um, I think we have to separate when when Salvadorans are asked about the state of exception, eighty-three or more percent say that they support it. But when Salvadorans are asked about the content of the state of exception, aspects like uh, arbitrary detentions, if family members aren't informed when uh, their relatives die in prison, uh, the suspension of due process rights specifically, each similar majority say that they're against it. Uh, so I think that there, there's, there's something, there's a nuance uh, to, the, to the narratives that we have to be able to identify. Obviously, the, the official narrative, the propaganda narrative of the government 
is that 90% of Salvadorans support him and therefore all of his policies. I think it's also important when we assess the, the popular support of the state of exception uh, that Salvadorans at no point have ever been presented with a real alternative. Uh, <clears throat> previous governments used uh, similar tactics, uh, illegal negotiations with gangs, uh, <clears throat> as well as mano dura uh, security strategies, which implied the mil- militarization and similar heavy-handed tactics. Um, so there's not really a, a strong experience in the Salvadoran population of what we might call a democratic alternative to security. Uh, there's never been a moment where Salvadoran political leadership has made a long-term commitment to strengthening institutions, uh, to using the power of the democratic state to provide not only the physical security against organized crime, uh, but security that guarantees their freedoms, security that guarantees uh, social justice. Um, so I think that the lack of options is, is it's kind of like uh, doing a poll of who your favorite guy is on a one-man island. The BBC covered President Bukele's re-election victory speech, and reportedly his reference to the state of exception drew the biggest cheers from the crowd. Now, you're right to point out that there hasn't been presented to Salvadorans a democratic alternative, a security approach that respects civil liberties while at the same time reducing violent crime. Absent that alternative, however, who are we to criticize the approach that has finally brought a measure of security to communities that have been terrorized for so many years by these gangs? Yeah, and and our organization, uh, one of our primary program areas has been providing assistance to people internally displaced by gangs. Uh, So the brutality, the violence, and the impact on Salvadorans is not foreign to us. Uh, We've been one of the principal advocates for a humanitarian response to displacement uh, caused by gang violence for almost a decade now. Uh, And I think that there's something we have to recognize the very rational um, sentiment of the Salvadoran people. Uh, The gang, the threats of gangs was a threat that's just around the corner. It's immediate. Extortion. Uh, I remember even a, a mother saying to me once that people talk about territorial control of gangs, but in the case of us women, nobody's talking about how they control our bodies. That, so that's real. That's a security threat that's real. Uh, and when there are security outcomes that reduce that the immediacy of that that reign of terror, um, you know, it, it's easy for Salvadorans to make that trade off against more abstract forms of security, like rule of law and democratic institutions. But what we're seeing, Benjamin, more and more in El Salvador uh, is that that's a trade-off that's easier to make until you need rule of law. Uh, Once your family members are detained, once you find that you can't really operate a business uh, while you're also being harassed by the government, once you need rule of law, uh, it no longer is abstract. And, uh, And one of the things we're seeing is that more and more sectors of society are bumping into the authoritarian state and finding that in the absence of rule of law, they don't have a way to protect rights. Yeah, let me ask you more about that. There seems to be this implicit social contract now in El Salvador that the population might be sacrificing civil liberties, but only to give the government the authority to crack down on criminal gangs. What you're suggesting is that that social contract is not being honored by the government now and probably less so in the future, which is to say other critics of the government are finding themselves victimized by the state of exception. Maybe non-governmental organizations like yours, you'll tell me, certainly journalists, maybe critics in the private sector 
are we seeing the government honor this implicit social contract or already abuse the concentration of authority? Yeah, the, I, you know, I think that's a complicated, posing it as a social contract means that there's like real consent. There's been a debate, it's clear what the terms are. I think this whole electoral campaign, uh, not one of the uh, congressional candidates presented a platform of proposals. Their whole campaign slogan was, we're going for everything. Uh, elect me because I'll support the president. And the president's campaign was, if you don't elect me and give me all of the Congress, they'll get rid of the state of exception and release the terrorists. There was no, there's no uh, messaging about policy. There's no clarity about policy. There's no debate in Congress. There's no public debate about it. Um, and so what you have uh, is, uh, you know, a few statements, for example, like the one that the vice president made a few days ago on PBS, where he said, yes, we are eliminating democracy and we're going to replace it with something new. Without the saying exactly what that something new is, which would imply a social contract like you are talking about. So what we have to do is deduct uh, from the practice, from what we've seen about how they've used, uh, you know, super majorities and an overwhelming concentration of power uh, in the practice. Uh, and as you point out, uh, in that sense, this trade-off between security uh, and civil liberties is a slippery slope. The state of exception is not a, uh, an emergency, dec emergency declaration anymore. There are a series of permanent reforms to the judicial system. Uh, there, there, it's the recognition uh, that there are no more independent institutions. Uh, the, the premise, the philosophical premise of the state of exception is called uh, the derecho penal del enemigo, uh, the penal law of the enemy, which, which poses that there are individuals and groups in a society who are fundamentally threats to that society and should not be protected by law or subjects of rights. Uh, and in this case, who gets to decide what people and groups in this country uh, are protected by rights is the president. And that's a scary scenario uh, that we see more and more people um, who, when they make proposals uh, to the government, when they make requests to the government, when they denounce actions of the government, are met with reprisals, consequences, whether it's massive attacks and defamation on social media, uh, whether it's espionage. Uh, whether it's in the, in the case of poor communities, uh, community leaders who have tried to defend rights um, have often done so uh, and suffered uh, arbitrary detentions themselves. So uh, there is a closing of society. Uh, this is a society where speaking now has a consequence. Noah, I'm sitting here in Washington. So as you might have guessed, I'm going to ask about the role of the international community and, and in particular the United States in addressing the context that you've just described. In his victory speech, Bukele said he loves Spain, Europe, and the United States, but then he added the following phrase, no les pedimos dinero ni ayuda internacional, sino que lo único que les pedimos es respeto. We don't ask for money or foreign assistance. The only thing we ask for is respect. In other words, people like me should stop criticizing the government, at least while its policies are bringing results. I should note that in some ways, the United States government seems to have followed that advice increasingly in recent months, though following Bukele's reelection, the U.S. Secretary of State pointedly said he would continue to prioritize, quote, fair trial guarantees and human rights in El Salvador. What do you see as the role of the international community in this moment when most Salvadorans seem pleased with their leadership? Yeah, I was in a conversation earlier this morning with people who were involved in the um, 
electoral observation missions in Guatemala and now here in El Salvador. Uh, and they were making that observation that um, there's this huge difference in the approach to Guatemala to El Salvador. And El Salvador, in the Salvadoran case, there's a lack of what they call international enforcement of electoral norms. Uh, and the concern is, is as uh, Nayib Bukele is able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with no consequences, it empowers the acceleration of a concentration of power uh, and those abuses that we've documented. Uh, I think that's 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 one of the things that's uh, been complicated as the international community tries to approach the president. His popularity has become the shield from which he justifies governing in a permanent state of exception, uh, acting above the law. Uh, this whole electoral process, I think you could say, uh, has been an exercise in undermining rule of law. The, the president... Uh, can do whatever he wants, and there are no consequences. He does it with impunity, uh, while uh, the opposition's opposition parties are denied e- equal conditions to participate. Uh, you mentioned his speech uh, last night. Uh, it's important just to think about the illegality of what that act was. Uh, you mentioned that President Bukele easily won, and he easily has won uh, 58 congressional seats of 60. There's actually no official result yet. Uh, President Bukele. Uh, last night in an orchestrated event where it seemed like he was able to leverage all of the power of the state. Uh, fireworks, uh, light shows, stages, of a plaza full of Vadorian fans. Um, and he announced that they did an exit poll, which is illegal in El Salvadoran electoral code, uh, that he paid for. Uh, and that indicated that he won a historic 85% of the vote uh, and at least 58 of the 60 seats. Um, you're not allowed to make statements like that in El Salvador before the electoral tribunal makes a determination about the outcome. And that was the second time in the course of the election uh, event yesterday that he illegally made public statements. Uh, I'm pointing that out because uh, these are the, 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 the sum of the irregularities, the abuses of law and the electoral process are symbolic of the way that this government has, uh, has governed. And I think the other important part of it is, as someone who went to three voting centers yesterday, um, the only presence of political parties was of the official party. Uh, the participation of the institutions that are supposed to oversee the elections and exercise control, uh, be the attorney general, the human rights ombudsman, uh, played their, their traditional role uh, as subordinate to the president. What it feels like, what it looks like on the ground in El Salvador is that the party has become the state and the state is in service to the president. Uh, And that has generated unequal conditions in the electoral outcome. Uh, And that's a situation uh, to which the international community, even before the the electoral tribunal produced, they still haven't yet at this moment of recording, any uh, official outcomes, many of the the countries in the region have recognized and congratulated President Bukele based on what he said. And all of there are strong indicators that the official outcomes of the election may be very different, especially at the at the level of congressional seats. Uh, and so what will happen uh, when the president's version of the election contradicts the version of uh, the electoral tribunal, which up to this point has been absolutely subservient to him? And I should note, we're speaking to one another on Monday, February 5th. 
where the official results have not yet arrived. Before I get to my last question, I want to uh, look into one other international aspect of what's happening in El Salvador, which is bukelismo. The idea that his apparent popularity and, and apparently overwhelming victory in this election will promote copycat policies throughout the region, given universal anxiety about violent crime and a lack of alternatives that have proved even close to as effective in the short term in addressing high levels of, of homicide, extortion, and other issues that have you know deeply impacted the quality of life throughout the Americas. You're focused mostly on El Salvador and Central America, but this goes all the way through South America, where there are plenty of political figures in and outside of power who are pointing to Bukele's example as something to be replicated. I'll just give one example, Ecuador, um, which has already adopted policies of massive arrest to address an explosion of organized crime violence. Are you at all concerned that if this case succeeds politically in El Salvador, we might see these human rights conditions elsewhere in Latin America? Yeah, I think that there is a risk, um, mostly at the narrative level, the, the the construction of sort of a political or, or a, a, a you know a collective belief about security, and this idea of a security in which all you have to do is incarcerate all the bad people, and there'll be no more problems. Uh, and you know that that that's one part of the Bukele model uh, is this idea. That, as I said before, that there's a group of enemies, and if we just take the enemies away, uh, everything goes away, which eliminates all the, you know, before we used to talk about the gangs being a product of structural problems, uh, and that the long-term solutions need to address those structural problems. But now you individualize it. And so the problem is actually individual, mostly poor people. Uh, as long as we put them all in prison, then there's no more terrorists and there's no more problems. Um, but I think that the 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 real, um, the thing that people need to understand more about President Bukele's model is that the first year years of uh, of his security strategy was premised on illegal negotiations with terror groups. Uh, if you have any doubt about this, I recommend reading the Eastern District of New York Attorney General's um, indictment of the leadership of the Mara Salvatrucha. Section 35, 36, and 37 describe in detail how the Bukele administration collaborated with gang leadership to reduce the perception of homicides or, uh, or create the perception of reduced homicide rates in El Salvador to specifically uh, strengthen his popularity and the way that they worked with the gang leadership in the first two elections uh, to uh, intimidate people in their territories of control to vote for the president. So if the security is one of the premises of the president's popularity, the origins of homicide reduction are in uh, illegal negotiations with gang, a deep alliance between the Bukele administration uh, and gang leadership, who has been protected by from the United States uh, for extradition. Uh, and there still seems to be one of the things, for example, Benjamin, uh, that's curious to us in having interviewed hundreds of people who have gotten out of prison uh, during the state of exception. One of the commonalities of all the testimonies is how um, the treatment of gang members in the prison is better than the treatment of people who are arrested uh, in the in the state of exception. Uh, and overwhelmingly, the testimonies uh, say that the, the, the grand majority of the people who have actually been detained are not linked to the gangs. Uh, so I think that there's there needs to be some uh, 
important awareness building about what the Bukele model is uh, in terms of security. And I think that that's uh, one of our responsibilities is to raise the red flag that this is a security model built on corruption uh, and uh, now in its most recent phase uh, premised on mass human rights violations. Just remember, almost 80,000 Salvadorans have been detained arbitrarily uh, in the last 22 months, uh, basically disappeared into prisons where their family members don't know where they are or if they're still alive. Uh, They face mass trials uh, of up to 900 people, all accused of the same crime without any individual evidence. They face uh, tribunals that that were created ad hoc to convict them. Uh, and judges whose identities are secret. Uh, when you put these on this sequence of things together, this doesn't sound like a criminal justice system. Uh, this sounds like a, a tropical gula. Uh, and President, the Vice President Ulloa said recently, he described mass trials of up, up to 900 people with no evidence as a judicial innovation. But from the perspective of human rights organizations, we see this as a return to the practices of some of the most dark periods of human history. Noah, before we conclude, curious your views on on where things go from here. You have what appears to be a transition toward a semi-authoritarian one-party state in El Salvador in which the president will face little or no opposition from civil society, from other political parties, from inside his own political movement. In that case, might we expect him to moderate somewhat his politics and his security policies? or Will he take advantage of this control to adopt the vamos por todo strategy and, and further cement his power? I think that is like one of the the dreams or the hopeful outcomes of people who who have said that most of the strategy should be constructive engagement to moderate uh, the worst impacts and try and have access in order to you know, improve the lives of people. Uh, but I think that that's um, I think that that's naive. Uh, when we look at five years of governance, I think there are pretty much three kind of pillars uh, to define the way that they've governed, and that's corruption. They've created a client system to benefit uh, people who are loyal to the president. Uh, they've used, uh, they've done things like negotiated with gangs to generate political benefits and consolidate popularity. They've demonstrated that they are brutal. Uh, and they're, they're capable of using re- mass repression. Uh, and that's evidenced in the state of exception. Uh, our recent monitoring, for example, in the weeks running up to the election of the militarization of 14 communities uh, in which they set up police checkpoints and, and corridors and uh, restricted the freedom of movement, arresting community leaders, among other people, uh, and their massive use of propaganda, the show, the political spe- uh, spectacular, right? Uh, that's been so effective in, in shaping public opinion. Uh, the majority of Salvadorans uh, don't know about the principal acts of corruption committed by the government. Uh, Salvadorans, even some members, uh, some family members of people who have been detained by the state of exception, say to us uh, that the president is, a, is almost like a divine mandate. Uh, that the, the somehow or, uh, or other uh, some part of the state made a mistake in the case of their family member, but the president will fix it. Uh, and that's a product, that's a consequence, that's an outcome of a very successful 
propaganda machine. So those are the three the three cornerstones and opa- and, and the lack of transparency, the secreting. There's no access to public information. There's no way for citizens to know how funds are, are allocated, who gets contracts, uh, among other things that are more basic in a democratic society. So those four things, when you put them together, it seems difficult that you could, uh, even though through like negotiations at the IMF, get a substantive commitment from the Bukele administration or Bukele regime to shift on those things because it's how they've built their power. It's the, it's, those are the, the cornerstones of a new political regime that was installed even before this election uh, and without maybe dif- indifference to other contexts, without you know a formal change to the constitution or a new constitution. Uh, but there's a de facto uh, political regime that operates and governs outside of the rule of law. Noah, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Benjamin. You have been listening to Plaza Central, a podcast about Latin America's most pressing political, economic, and social developments. To learn more about our program, please visit wilsoncenter.org slash LAP. And please join us next time for another episode of Plaza Central. 